You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Today, women are in the financial driver's seat. We are entrepreneurs, CEOs, breadwinners for ourselves and our families, and yet we are still uncertain when it comes to our personal finances. Why is that? I tackle that question and so many more in my new book, Women with Money, a judgment-free guide to getting more of what you want from your money. With help from some of the world's top financial planners and economists, I outline a three-part plan for exactly how you can achieve what you want from your money. To pre-order yours and get access to bonus materials and giveaways, visit womenwithmoneybook.com. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want you to demand more from your money. So start by knowing what you own, what you owe. We can help you take the next step at fidelity.com slash demand more now. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody. It's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. When it comes to looking for opportunities to trim a little bit from your budget, I am really sick of people telling me, and me telling people, by the way, to make your own coffee and bring your lunch to work, even if, as I read in the Wall Street Journal recently, that is all of a sudden chic again. But as much as I don't want to say it, the fact is many of us spend a huge proportion of our disposable incomes on food. We literally eat our money. And cooking is one way, if you can wrap your arms around it, to help you save some money to make you healthier. If you're like me, it will also make you happier. And so Kelly and I called on one of our favorite home cooks, one of our favorite food writers, Melissa Clark. Melissa is a New York Times food columnist. She is the author of 40 cookbooks. That is an astounding number. Her latest, which is is currently sitting on the counter in my kitchen, is Comfort in an Instant, 75 Comfort Food Recipes for Your Pressure Cooker, Multi-Cooker, and Instant Pot. And I would like to point out, 50 of them can be made in under an hour. Love that. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Both Kelly, our producer, and I cook at least one of your recipes about each week. So we feel like we know you and (laughs) we owe you. Um, (laughs) But for those of our listeners who don't, let me just start with a little bit about you. You were born in Brooklyn, raised in Brooklyn, live in Brooklyn with your husband and your daughter. Where did this love of food and cooking come from? Well, I mean, it did come from Brooklyn because my parents were amazing cooks, but it also came from our family vacations every summer. Well, my parents were psychiatrists, which back in, back in the <laughs> 80s meant <laughs> meant that they had they took August off because that's what the people psychiatrists used to take the whole month of August off, which they don't do anymore which I think is good for their patients. But um, if you needed one in August, you were in trouble. And we would um, decamp the whole family. We would exchange our Brooklyn house for a house somewhere in France. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And this was in the 80s. So imagine this was pre-internet. There was a book that came out, a home exchange book. And we would write letters, you know, on that blue airline stationery. I don't know if you remember that. I do. (laughs) 
time we would write letters to complete strangers and exchange our house with their house. And they'd come to, you know, 1980s Brooklyn, which was not like current Brooklyn. And um, we would go to some charming little town in the middle of Provence. And it was fantastic. And we we spent a lot of time cooking, you know, going to markets, looking at ingredients. And I really developed a deep love of cooking and also of pristine ingredients. And it was all part of the same thing. Going to the markets would just inspire me. You know, you'd want to buy everything and being have, you know, having a place to go cook it, having a kitchen just made it so much better because you could see the thing, you can see the beautiful tomatoes, bring them home and then actually eat them for lunch. Oh my gosh, I I am so envious. This sounds like everybody's dream summer vacation. So a, a fun fact about me is that I actually went to cooking school. And a surprising fact about you is that you didn't. So how did cooking and food writing turn into your career? You know, sometimes I think that um, I regret that I didn't go to cooking school. But other times I think, well, maybe it's better because it puts me more in the head of the average home cook. I mean, I know a lot and I've been learning a lot. Um, and I consider myself a student. I always learn. But because I didn't have that formal training like you had, um, Maybe in a way it helps my writing. It helps me kind of understand the questions people would have um, because I used to have them too. You know, I remember a lot of, I mean, I'm very self-taught. I did work in restaurants, a little bit in the kitchen, but mostly in the front of the house. I did a lot of waitressing and hostessing and co-checking and I learned from my parents, but I never, like I couldn't debone a chicken. Like I just couldn't. So I would never, <laughs> never ask my, my readers to do that. I actually can debone a chicken. Just, I, I bet you can. I can, <laughs> although it's been a very, very long time, and I would much prefer not to do it anymore. And I <laughs> I went to cooking school with the idea that maybe I would be able to be Molly O'Neill, who was one of your predecessors at the New York Times one day. And what I learned was that I gained 20 pounds and I didn't need to spend that much time around food. And so back to money writing, it was for me. But I am a, an avid home cook, and I do think it is one of those things that's wildly misunderstood. The, the Cut did a great interview with you back in 2017 when your first Instant Pot book, Dinner in an Instant, came out. And you said you're an advocate for the home cook, and it's because you think you're lazy, which is so <laughs> surprising because— People who don't cook often don't cook because they say it's too much work, or at least they think it's too much work. So explain how lazy works in your favor. Well, I try really hard to, I mean, I don't try really hard. I just, I'm. it's not something I'm even conscious of. I am just, I just do this on automatic pilot. I'm always looking to eliminate steps in a recipe. I'm always looking to eliminate cleanup. That's the big thing is cleanup. If I can use one fewer bowl, you know, one less bowl, if I could do everything in one pan, I'm going to be happier because I, I, it's just easier. So that's just sort of a natural habit of mine is to look for shortcuts. But at the same time, I'm also extremely passionate about getting the most flavor out of my ingredients. So if I have to stand there and cook something, if, if I need, you know, 30 minutes to make sure that I am browning every surface of all of the meat that's going into my stew, I will do that. However, if I don't have to do it, if I've tested the recipe and I'm and I can say, well, you know what? If I brown two sides, that's actually going to be enough. Then I'll do that. So flavor will always be first. But if flavor is on par, if there's a, you know, if it's equal with doing, you know, taking a shortcut, I'll take the shortcut. 
there are a lot of other excuses that people have as well for the reasons that they don't cook. I mean, some people say it doesn't make sense to cook for one. What do you tell them? Oh, I think, well, you know, if you don't like to cook, then I agree with you. It doesn't make sense to cook for one. If you're not finding pleasure out of the act of cooking, then don't do it. I mean, I I would say that across the board. There are so many ways to get around it. And if it makes you sad, then then just don't cook. I mean, or do the easiest thing that you can get away with, especially if you're if you're not that concerned with what you're eating, you know, if you're eating for fuel. But if you love great food and if you find some joy in some parts of cooking or or actually a lot of people I know, they say, I love to cook on the the weekends, Mm -hmm. but I don't like to cook after work. And you know what? If you love it on the weekends, you you probably will love it after work too. You just have to figure out a way to find the joy in it. I think a lot of people try to bite off more than they can chew on the weekdays. You know, they're like, oh, I want to make something, and they they reach too far, and then they're frustrated because it, you know, on the weekdays you just don't have that much time, and you're already tired because you've worked a full day. So what I say is, and this is actually something I write about in my cook um, in my cookbook, Dinner and uh, Changing the Game, which I wrote two cookbooks ago, I I say, find the joy in in cooking dinner every single time you cook. If you're not in the mood, don't do it. Because when you're cooking, you're not in the mood. It never comes out good. It just doesn't taste good. Um, But if if there's some part of you that's like, you know what? I'm going to find joy in the rhythm of chopping. I'm going to put my favorite music on and maybe give yourself permission to like be in the moment. Like, you know, kick everyone out of your kitchen if you want to, if you need the time alone or invite everybody in and have them sit and talk to you while you cook, which is what I do. And just enjoy it. Give yourself that half an hour to not check your phone and to not worry about emails and to just enjoy the process of watching your food transform into something delicious to eat. Because I really do feel like if you keep it simple, you know, pick a simple recipe and just be in the moment when you're cooking it, you will find self-fulfillment. And you know, that's going to be better than sitting on the couch watching a TV show and you're going to feed your family. And you know what? They're going to be really happy because you've cooked food for them. And even if you're by yourself, you're going to be really happy because you've cooked food for you. And then you can take it and sit on the couch and watch your show after. I love that. And what I also seem to be hearing a little bit is this sense that when it comes to ideas of what to make for dinner, you don't seem like you're ever at a loss. I mean, I read that you come up with 65 recipes a year for The Times. And when you're writing a cookbook, and let me just repeat that you've written 40, which is an astonishing (laughs) number, then you can average 75 recipes in six weeks. I mean, there are weeks where I do not know what I want to make tomorrow. So I have a stack of cookbooks. But beyond that, how do you come up with your ideas? Um, Well, you know, I mean, when it's your job, you just kind of you know, sit down and and just think it through. Um, For cookbook, cookbooks tend to be very formulaic. So when I'm writing, when I know I need to write 75 recipes in six weeks, I need to lay out, well, how many of them need to be, you know, breakfast items? How many of them need to be side dishes? How many chicken recipes do I want? So I I come up with the um, the basic blueprint and then I fill it in. And the way that I fill it in is um, a lot of it is well, what do I feel like eating right now? What am I in the mood for? What's in season all year round? Because, you know, if I'm writing a cookbook in a short six-week period, I'm just in one season. But I have to be thinking about seasons for the entire year. So I have to think, okay, well, what, what are my spring recipes? What are my fall recipes? What are my winter recipes? And then as you start to narrow it down, it starts to fall into place. Like you, I think, well, if I need 
10 chicken recipes. And then let's say I want to do two of them for winter or maybe three for winter, three for spring, you know, say 12 recipes, three for each season. Then it becomes almost like, well, it's so hard to, you know, I only have three spring spots. Oh my God, do I do chicken with artichokes or asparagus or do I have room for both? Or where am I going to fit my spring greens in? So as you start to break it down, it, you don't like anything. Anytime you break, you know, when you see a big job and you break it down, it just becomes easier. So that's the, the way I approach a cookbook. In terms of cooking what, you know, what I want to make for dinner that night, it's all about really just listening to, listening to my belly. What am I hungry for? What do I in the mood for? And then, you know, looking in the fridge and seeing what's on hand or what I can stop and get at the store. (laughs) I vote for the chicken with artichokes because I made the chicken with artichokes from the comfort in an instant book. And it's quite good. Quite delicious. Oh, good. Yeah. I want to actually go back to the cost element, the cost considerations, because you're talking a lot about wonderful ingredients. But before I get there, just a reminder that Her Money is proudly sponsored by Fidelity Investments. What if you could demand more for your money? What if you could make your savings work as hard as you do? And what if that helped you reach your financial goals faster? It all starts with a financial checkup and an understanding of what you own and what you From there, Fidelity will work with you to evaluate your investment options and ways to grow your savings. And you can get started today at fidelity.com slash demand more now. We are happily talking with the New York Times' Melissa Clark, author of many of your favorite cookbooks and mine. I, I get especially from the sheet pan cookbook and the instant pot cookbooks, Simplicity and time are major considerations when you're building recipes. How do you factor in cost? Um, That's a really good question. You know, I don't because I am really good at rationalizing. Anytime I want to spend money on something, I will figure out a way to rationalize the cost. So my big thing is it's cheaper than eating out. And I mean, we actually don't really go out to dinner very often. I have to go out a certain amount for work. Mm -hmm. Um, But for the most part, we cook all the time. I love to cook. So even when I've cooked all day long, I still want to cook at night because I love it. So I'm definitely in the right profession. But so I don't think about the cost and I don't mind, you know, I don't mind buying salmon for $30 a pound because I know that even if I buy, you know, a pound and a half, 45 bucks, that is still much cheaper than going out and spending um, that amount of money for three entrees at a restaurant, you know, for my family, for my daughter and my husband and myself. So I guess that's how I look at it. I don't stint on ingredients. You know, I don't I don't look for ways to save money. I look for quality. It's really important to me. That said, I do do certain things like um, I have a CSA membership, which is um, it's also called a farm box. It's community supported agriculture. Mm-hmm. And I pay in advance to a farmer. And I get vegetables, fruits and vegetables all year long, and it ends up being much cheaper than if I would buy those things individually. So I'm not doing that necessarily to save money. I'm doing it because I get amazing quality, but at the same time, I am saving money. So I guess, I I mean, I'll I'll just buy one fewer pair of shoes and I'll get that salmon. (laughs) I, I totally get where your priorities are. When you look around your kitchen, are there any other products, and they don't have to be edible, by the way, but cooking implements or tools that you would spend money on every single time? 
I think any kitchen tools, you know, every time I cheap out on something, I regret it in terms of my kitchen appliances, because I use my kitchen. It's I cook in my home kitchen and that's where I do all my recipe testing, but I use it like a professional kitchen. I'm in there all the time. I'm using stuff very heavily and it needs to last. And I just don't want, I mean, I don't want to replace things. Um, so the things I feel that are very important to spend money on your skillets, your cookware, your knives, except for your paring knives. I say buy cheap paring knives. I get my paring knives for $11 each. I can't even remember the brand. And then I use them for six months and throw them out. (laughs) So because, you know, it's just, they just don't stay sharp enough. You know, I watch really carefully. What are the things that are, that I'm going to want to replace because it's just not worth it? And what are the things that I want to make sure will last me for years? Sheet pans are really inexpensive. They're 20 bucks each. You can get them for $5 each, but the $20 ones, it's not a lot of money, but they're going to last that much longer. So I guess I'm always going to probably go for quality. Every once in a while, my husband will say, well, we renovated our kitchen. We actually, you know, that was a huge expense because it's renovating a kitchen and we really had a small budget and we cheaped out on a lot of things. And it's 10 years later and every one of those cheap decisions, especially the floor, we regret so much. And, you know, not that we could have done it differently, but maybe we should have. Maybe we should have waited a couple of years and saved some more money and then done it right. Because, you know, especially when you cheap out on a floor, you can't really replace your kitchen floor very easily. So I guess I wish I had sort of thought about, well, where are the places I can save money that won't matter that I could replace? And where are the things that actually I should invest in smartly, wisely that are going to be harder to replace? All right. We have just a few minutes left. I want to do a very quick speed round. What do you always have in your pantry? Anchovies, lemons, garlic. Fridge? Um, I guess the lemons really go in the fridge. Lettuces, herbs, some kind of herbs, milk, yogurt. And, um, you know, I keep my root veg in the fridge too, like turnips, all my winter veg. So I always have a lot of different vegetables all the time. Should I be keeping my potatoes in the fridge? This is not part of the speed round, but sometimes my potatoes, you know, they, they sit around, they get eyes. Yeah. You know, well, you know, it's not great to keep them. Actually, I don't keep, you know, this is the only root I don't keep in the fridge. I keep my turnips and my my beets and my kohlrabi in the fridge. Um, potatoes, here's the thing about potatoes. They really get eyes no matter what you do. I mean, even if you put them in the darkest, deepest cabinet and you put them in a paper bag, mine still get eyes. So I've stopped buying potato. I don't keep potatoes on hand. They're not a pantry item for me. I buy them when I need them because they're just, I find the quality to be better. So that's, that is a new thing for me. I used to say potatoes were a pantry item. Not anymore. What do you always have in the freezer? Uh, my freezer is a very scary place. I have uh, m- my husband says I have dead bodies in there, but not quite. Um, <laughs> it's um, I always have leftover um, chilies and soups. I make extra batches whenever I cook up a big stew or a chili or a soup, and I put containers, lunch size containers, in the freezer so that um, if I work in the office, I can grab one and go to work, or my husband can you know reheat one when I'm not home. Those are great to have. Uh, I always have frozen berries. Frozen berries, they make an instant dessert, or I can use them in smoothies. I have um, extra butter if I have any butter. I have lard and extra duck fat. So I have a lot of fats in the freezer. I always have bacon. It's very important. And um, I think I usually have, um, I like to have sausages. That's another good thing to keep in your freezer because they defrost quickly. And it's one of those, I have nothing in the house for dinner, but you have sausages. So, What was your favorite recipe of 2018? I did a Thanksgiving special for the New York Times that yes, I'm really you proud did. of. Yeah. And um, one of the recipes was really wacky. Um, 
but it it's uh, something that I will make forevermore. It's an anchovy butter laden turkey. So you take your turkey and you roast it and you put anchovy butter with, and it has garlic in it under the skin and all over the bird. And it adds so much flavor. And it's a great thing to do with um, chicken too. And um, this might be my new turkey forever. The anchovy just makes, you know, turkey... It, it, the butter keeps it juicy and moist and the anchovy adds so much flavor and even better, the drippings on the bottom of the pan when you make your gravy are heaven. Mm, amazing. What are you cooking tonight? It's probably that turkey now because you've been talking about it. <laughs> I wish. Actually, tonight I'm making sausages. <laughs> there you go, out of the freezer. <laughs> At, well, no, I bought them fresh. I bought some rabbit sausages because my butcher had them on sale. I was like, ooh, rabbit sausages. So rabbit sausages, red cabbage and potatoes. Sounds amazing on this very, very cold day. Melissa Clark, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us. I will head home and cook something in my Instant Pot. That sounds wonderful. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Our producer, Kelly Hultgren, has joined me in the studio, so I was about to say that was a treat. Nice. <laughs> no pun intended, but it was it was really a treat. Her description of the turkey at the end had me salivating out there. I know. I know. I make this, and I think it's one of her recipes. I make it is one of her recipes. I make this roast chicken in a cast iron skillet. She just splays the legs on the roast chicken. I actually split it open and spatchcock it. And if you don't know what spatchcocking is, it's something that you should look up. But I make it in the cast iron skillet on the grill in the summer. And what makes this so good is that you put a rub on the chicken and you let it get really, really lemony. Mm -hmm. And then you cook it in the cast iron skillet. And then you take the chicken out and you saute greens in the drippings from the chicken plus a little anchovy. Oh, that sounds so good. And then... You're and, not helping me right now. <laughs> and then, you know, I've been making sourdough yes, lately. Yes. Bread, baking bread. So then you take big slices of the bread. Oh you rub gosh. them with garlic. You toast them on the grill. And you put the greens and some ricotta Oof, on, oh my goodness. on the toast and have the chicken on the side. When are you coming for dinner? That's right. Yeah. Soon. <laughs> Soon. When it's grill season, you oh, can come for gosh, dinner. That sounds so good. Yeah. I want to go back to a moment in the the interview because even though it's not cost isn't a factor for her and her recipes, even if she doesn't really factor it in, I'd say cooking her recipes myself, they are perfect for people who are trying to keep cost in mind. That's just my personal opinion. I find that her recipes not only are they simple in terms of ingredients, the products you need, the time it takes, I find that those are the variables that end up meaning it's also going to be cost-effective meal for you as well. Well, let's also talk about leftovers, yes, right? Leftovers. So there are always leftovers. Mm -hmm. um, and that article that I made fun of in the Wall Street Journal about bringing your lunch being mm -hmm. trendy mm -hmm. is really all about just buying a nice container to put your leftovers in yep. and then bringing them to work. And what I was noticing about the description of the lunch that the person in the story brought was it was a little bit of last night's chicken, a little bit of last night's couscous or potatoes mm -hmm. or whatever. You know, you could spend $14 for that at Dig In. Yeah. Right? Totally. Or any takeout spot. And the other thing that I did want to say is I would never spend $30 a pound for salmon. I might. 
You would? I might be one I of those people. I don't buy, I don't actually like the wild salmon mm-hmm. as much as I like the farmed salmon. Okay, I'm with you there. And We're the, not supposed to say that, though. I know. I don't, I know. But And the farmed salmon is far cheaper. Yeah. I will spend whatever, mm-hmm. not whatever, but I will spend money on great ingredients. And I will drive 20 minutes to the good fish store rather than going to the grocery store because the fish is that much better. But if I was looking at the farmed salmon or the, you know, $21 swordfish or, which we're not supposed to eat because it's... (laughs) Right. The mercury, right? Well, and I think it's on the list of... Oh, endangered. Endangered. But my point is if I'm choosing between a $12 $12 a pound fish or a $15 a pound fish and a $30 a pound fish, I'm going for the the less expensive the 12, yeah. one and I'm dressing it up in my pan. I mean, yeah. And I that's and I'm getting it at Costco. And you're getting it cases. at Costco. <laughs> Costco's wonderful. I, the Costco by my house in Arizona has the best ribeyes I've ever had. So Costco's awesome. That's a whole show in and of itself. And I'd say also part of the interview that really resonated with me are the excuses that I once made. Like, it's it doesn't make sense to cook for one, or I don't have time to cook, or I don't even know where to begin. I used to say that a lot, especially the first few years I lived here. And it resulted in me overspending on food on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis, like big time. So I've challenged myself in the past, I'd say year, year and a half especially. And even just last night is the perfect example. I was cooking for one. I wasn't cooking for friends or with my boyfriend. I went to Whole Foods and I got just this beautiful chicken breast that they had already jazzed up with Parmesan and garlic and a a panko crust. I got one breast. It was $3. So I put that in the oven. I made a side salad. Those ingredients probably cost me probably like 5 to $10 based off of like what I put in the salad. So I had a dinner for less than $10 for one. And I made the exact same thing pretty much. No way. Except I put the breadcrumbs on myself. You did, and you did I, all the work. <laughs> and, I, and I, well, but I had a whole yeah. pack of chicken breasts. Sure. I was cooking for three because right. Jake was home. And I made chicken milanese with the salad on top. Mm-hmm. Um, I cooked it in a pan rather than doing it in the oven. But I think I made that dinner for the three of us mm-hmm. probably for 12 bucks. See, that's amazing. Yeah. So, And then you have leftovers, and that's another meal too. So, it's lunch for Elliot. Yeah, it's lunch. Exactly. <laughs> so I... And maybe it's because I'm more mature. Who knows? Oh, but like, we know. Oh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows why? But the light bulb has gone off and I'm cooking more and I also love it too. And it is really amazing to see how much money I'm saving and how much better I feel. So I, I'm doing it. And I was one of the people that I thought, you know, I don't know, would never be here. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, so share share your recipes yeah. on our Facebook page. I'm not that good. I'm going to be sharing Melissa's. Oh, <laughs> Those are my recipes. <laughs> Speaking of which... Let's do some questions. Okay. All right. Our first question is from Rachel. My partner and I recently bought a house. We want to redo all the floors and trim, replace interior doors, one bathtub, two vanities, and paint throughout. The house was built in 1976 and needs updating. We're going to do all of the labor ourselves, except for plumbing and electricity. That's really impressive. Currently, we are saving $500 a month for these projects, and we have $6,000 in a house specific emergency fund. My question is, should we continue saving and doing projects slowly, or should we use Home Depot project card, six months to spend, 8% interest, seven years to pay? Those are the 
stats from the card, it sounds like, to get all the materials and then do the projects quicker so we can enjoy our hard work for a few years before we move, planning to move in seven to eight years, and pay the credit card off with the 500 per month we're saving. I estimate the materials will be between $15,000 to $20,000. Wow, kudos for really doing the research on this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm mixed because 500 a month, $20,000, that's 40 months. That's a little over three years. You say you're leaving in a few years. What's a few really? Is it two? Is it three? I, I'm worried about you being out of this house before you've repaid the money. I think I would take another look at my project list before I go down that road and see priority-wise what matters. I mean, as she was laying out her projects, mm-hmm. I'm thinking doors are a big bugaboo of mine when <laughs> I – I know it's it's a strange thing, but I have this thing about solid doors that you get in older places and some of the newer construction, you get these hollow core doors, yes. and they're light, and yep. and I just, I hate them. Yeah, they're um, in my apartment. Yeah, and I, I've had them in some of my houses as well, and I just, all I want to do is replace them, because just having that makes the place feel more structurally sound to me, even mm-hmm. if it's not. Mm-hmm. So I would think about um, prioritizing that list, and then maybe doing it in chunks. Mm-hmm. Um, borrow it as much as you can pay off in six months, do a little bit of project work, see if you can come up with some extra money, and then pay, you know, pay that down, do it again. Yeah. I worry about getting so ahead on the uh, you know, on the on the expense that you're actually putting into this house that you're still gonna be paying for it after you move. And with all the budgeting and forecasting in the world, you know, you hope it goes according to plan, but who knows what could happen along the way, too. So it's And with the sale of the house. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So. You don't want to over-improve a place for the amount that you're eventually going to get back. That's the one calculation that she didn't run. Mm. Um, and and I, I think, you know, my fixer-upper math in my head, I always am <laughs> very intrigued by when Chip Gaines says, well, you, you know, you put $40,000 into this, but now it's worth 60000 more. Well, you know, how do how, how do, do we, we know? know? How do we know that? Talk to a realtor. Talk to a local realtor. Go shop some open houses. See what places like yours are fetching now. See what places that are fixed up are fetching. Do, do that math and then use the information to make the decision. But I don't like the idea of you carrying the expense on a credit card where the interest rate is going to pop. Yep. Now we'll do one from Liz. Hi, Jean. I have a question about paying off credit card debt. Due to a variety of circumstances, I have $20,000 in credit card debt on three cards. I've been working to pay them off, including having a side job in addition to my full-time job, but I feel like I'm not getting anywhere. I'd like your opinion on other options, such as home equity loan slash HELOC or through a consumer credit counseling service. If it helps, I'm 37 and single. I have 11 years left on my mortgage. Yay. Less than $10,000 in student loan. That is PSLF, which is Public Student Loan Forgiveness, and on track for payoff, $140,000 in a 403B, contributing 10%, and $48,000 in a Roth, fully fund each year. Any tips would be helpful. So, Liz, I think I understand everything that you're saying here. I don't know that the situation is maybe as dire as you're feeling that it is. I, I love that you've got this side hustle, that you're working to 
get out of this credit card debt, I would take a look first at the interest rates on the credit card debt. When you mention a credit counselor, the benefit of a credit counseling service is that they have deals with the credit card companies where if you go into their debt management program, they'll reduce your interest rates to 6% and they will consolidate it. You write them one check every single month and then they pay off your debts and you're not allowed to use your credit cards while you're in the process of going through that program. The program takes a while. It takes most people four to five years to get out under a debt management program, so you should know that going in. I would look at what your credit card interest rates are on your own. It may be possible that you could do a balance transfer, roll these together, and get a 0% interest rate for a good 12 to 18 months and use that to make considerable headway on paying down this credit card debt. A HELOC is possible. Home equity debt will not be deductible if you're using it for anything other than improvements on your home under the new tax law, so you should know that going in. But the other thing that you could do is to soft pedal the retirement contributions just a little bit. You say you've got 140000 in a 403B and you're contributing 10% a year. I don't know if that 10% is matched. If that 10% is matched and you're actually putting in the equivalent of 15% a year, you could soft pedal the Roth contributions and um, put some of that money toward your credit card debt. I would look at those two things first, reducing the interest rates on your own, knowing that if you get to the point where the balance transfer has not expired and the interest rate's about to kick back up again, you will have to look for another balance transfer that would lower the interest rate. I don't see balance transfers going away anytime soon. So I think that is probably your best option as long as you've got a good credit score. But looking at everything else on your list and how well you're doing, I find it very difficult to believe that you don't have a good credit score. So good luck. And if you need more help with this, let us know. It goes back to what I've heard you say multiple times is that when we do have more money to save to do that, and with this situation, like you said, it sounds like she has a pretty good-sounding looking financial picture. Maybe she just does that or uses that mentality with her debt right now. So it's 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 reallocating the money she's putting towards the Roth and focusing on the debt if the debt is really bothering her. The credit card debt is really bothering her and or costing her more. costing her more, yeah. right? She didn't say what the interest rate on that credit yeah. card debt is right now. But if we're looking at this purely from a numbers perspective, and I always think we look at financial trade-offs from both perspectives, right? We look at the numbers and then we do the sleep test. Mm-hmm. When we look at the numbers on this, the average credit card interest rate right now is about 15 or 16%. That is more than you're going to get putting money into a Roth, yep. even in a good year yeah. in the market, and it's guaranteed. Yeah. So understanding that when we are paying down debt, we are putting real money in our pockets mm-hmm. is is an important thing to do. It often doesn't feel that way, I think, particularly to women, because we sit on these cash cushions that are sometimes a lot larger than we need them to be because that feels safe to us. Yep. It's not as safe as using the money to pay off credit card debt. 
And we will do one more from Britt. I just listened to episode 138. Loved it. Thank you. And I'd love to contribute to a college savings plan for my niece and nephews, but all of my sisters are terrible with money. And for those of you who haven't listened to 138 yet, we had Abby Chow on. She is the COO of College Backer, which is a company that helps you help loved ones save for their children's college educations. Yep. So... Terrible with money. Sorry to hear that. I'm nearing the end of my student loan payments. Hallelujah. And I want to be a helpful auntie who helps my niece and nephews get to or through college financially. I'm 25 years old and working a job that makes a decent living, contributing to my 401k and my Roth IRA, but I'd love to start putting money away for my niece and nephews to go to college. I feel like now is the time, but I don't know how to go about doing this when none of my sisters think it's a priority. My question is, how do I put money away in the best possible way for my sister's kids without their cooperation? Is it possible? Should I just not care and buy the kids stocks and bonds or something? Any advice is appreciated, and thanks so much for all that you do. I love our listeners. Me too. <laughs> oh, my God. Britt, you're going to make me cry. I don't know why this question in particular is making me tear up. I think she is I, tearing up. No, I'm tearing I think it was when, when Kelly read that you're 25. Yeah. Like, you're 25. Yeah. And you're thinking about putting your nieces and nephews through mm-hmm. school like that is, that is, uh, let's, really can cool. we, let me, I, we want to send you a book. I want to just send you <laughs> something. So, so once you hear this, send us your address yes. and we'll send you a copy of Women With Money, which ah, you are. Yes. Um, we don't have the actual books quite yet. Women With so Money exciting. comes out March 26th. That's mm-hmm. my, my new book. It's the judgment-free guide to creating the joyful, less stressed, purposeful, and yes, rich life you deserve. And yes, that is a mouthful of a subtitle, but I'm going (laughs) to just say it until it sounds natural, (laughs) and we're going to send you one. Here's the good news. This is totally easy. Open the 529s in your own name. Yep. Or open them for the kids, but continue to own them yourself. When they get closer to college and financial aid becomes an issue, at that point, you will want to think about transferring ownership of those accounts to your sister or to the parent of these children. Because if the financial aid formulas don't change, assets that are in the parent's name are counted as the same as assets of the students. But if you continue to own them, they will make more of an impact on the sort of financial aid that they will receive. There's so little, you don't have to worry about that at all right now. And I know this from experience. So I have 529s that I opened for my two nieces when they were born. They are entering high school. I switched the ownership to my brother and and sister-in-law. And it was a very easy thing to do. I did have to get it notarized. Notary is always a little Mm, bit of a pain in the ass. But not a big deal in the scheme of things. And um, we love you. <laughs> yeah, we, we do love you. We love all of our listeners. Thank you for writing in. And yes, Britt, please email me when this episode comes out. Find me in the Facebook group, too. You can message me there. We have a private Facebook group that's growing every single day. It's filled with more people like Britt who you guys are just helping each other out. And it's really cool to see. So head to Facebook and message me there, too. Yep, Thank absolutely. You. And you can see Kelly and I upside down. Which <laughs> yeah. whenever we try to do a Facebook live on on the uh in the Facebook group, I don't know group. why. We we've tried many different it's angles so on this camera. I we know. cannot we cannot get it right. You see us, we're like turned. Yeah. We're we're cockeyed. But but you know, our hearts are in the right place. Yes. We're crooked, but our hearts in the right place. That's perfect. <laughs> that should be our tagline for whenever we're on air together. Exactly. And in today's Thrive, if you are looking for a new gig, 
Uh, the days where your resume was your golden ticket to getting the job, they seem to be on the decline. Today, it is all about LinkedIn. 90%, more than 90% of recruiters are saying that they rely on that site to find and to vet job candidates, and that's according to the Society of Human Resource Management. So if it's been a while since you burnished or, let's be honest, even looked at your profile, it's time to show it some love. According to the folks at money.com, you want to include your location, your education, and a picture that looks professional. All of these are the sorts of musts that will dramatically increase the likelihood that you will pop up during a search. They also offer hints for actually connecting with the folks that you're linked to by sharing articles, commenting on promotions, liking updates from connections. It's a social network, they point out, so be social. Thanks so much for listening to me on Her Money today. Thank you to Melissa Clark for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. Reviews are important. We want to know what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with another great guest, and we'll talk soon.